Good morning. It's good to see all of you uh, here together with us this morning. If you've got your Bible, let's go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 is where we are going to be uh, spending our time together today. If you do not have a Bible, but you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks uh, in front of you. At least there should be one somewhat nearby. And uh, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and so if you start there and work your way forward, you should find Genesis 6 fairly quickly. If the number of them produced is any indication, we love movies about the end of the world. It feels like there's 20 movies a year where there is some sort of catastrophic extinction-level event coming upon humanity in the form of an asteroid or a natural disaster or zombies or some sort of global sickness, not that that would ever happen, Uh, but there's always something like that coming, and the plot of these movies is, is kind of follows the same formula. There's a smallish group of people who are either doing everything they can to prevent the disaster from occurring at all, or they are trying to build some means of escaping the disaster. There's an interesting spin on that genre that came out uh, earlier this year, I think. It's a movie called Don't Look Up. And in this film, there's this uh, doctoral candidate uh, named Kate who has the good fortune of discovering a comet. And if you're an astronomer type, uh, it's not every day that somebody gets to discover something that has never been seen before, but Kate gets to do that. Unfortunately, when she has the help of her professor with her, Dr. Mindy, they start trying to determine the size of this comet, and then they start determining the trajectory of this comet, and they realize that this comet is going to intersect with the earth in just a few months' time. And not only is this comet going to intersect with the earth, but this comet is large enough that it is going to produce an extinction-level event. It's not going to It's not going to wipe out a city. It's not going to simply wipe out a country. It is going to wipe out the entire earth. You would think then that the rest of the film follows the formula of trying to either prevent the disaster from occurring or somehow escape the disaster. And that that element is there. But the twist that that movie provides is that this woman, Kate, and her professor can hardly get anybody to take it seriously. They've performed these calculations. They've checked them numerous times. They're absolutely certain that what's going to happen is going to happen. They get an audience with the President of the United States, and they think when they share this data and they start talking about the timeline, that the President is immediately going to spring into action to try to destroy this comet or to do something to save the earth. But the President is pretty much not concerned about it at all. She's got a lot of other things going on. And so, they don't, get it, they don't get the attention that they want that route. They go on a morning talk show, kind of like Good Morning America. And they present their findings on the morning talk show. And the hosts kind of laugh about it because they're more interested in the latest celebrity couple feud that's going on than the fact that there is a giant comet heading 
to earth. Well, once the comet finally becomes visible to the naked eye so that the average person can go outside and see it's up there, they start a social media campaign called Just Look Up with the hashtag Just Look Up to try to get people's attention. And then the president and others start a counter campaign called Don't Look Up to see what is coming at them. Now, the film is a fairly heavy-handed satire. Uh, Some satire is subtle. There's no subtlety at all in this movie. But it makes its point well enough. How do you overcome the world's apathy towards impending doom? Like, what does it take to get people to see? What does it take to get them to look up? Well, this morning we are going to look at a story about an extinction-level event. We're going to see that the people of earth are going about their business like they always have, while God's judgment speeds toward them with all of the speed of a comet getting ready to make an impact with the planet. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 begins the third of ten major sections in the book of Genesis that the author has very helpfully marked for us by beginning each section with that little phrase, these are the generations. This is the third of those ten sections. This is a large section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. You can see, uh, well, you can't see because you don't have a bulletin uh, because we had technical issues. If you had a bulletin, imagine looking at it knowing what the order of service was, and then imagine in your mind's eye that Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 to 8 and verse 19 is what it says on the page. That's what we're doing. But we're not going to be able to do all three of those chapters this week. We're going to split it between uh, two weeks, Lord willing, and study it in that length of time. But what I want to do at the outset is just go ahead and give you the main idea that I want you to consider this week and next. The main idea that I want us to consider from this passage is this truth, God is faithful to protect His people from judgment. God is faithful to protect His people from judgment. I hope you'll see that that is a a main thrust of this passage of Scripture over the course of the next two weeks. And what I'd like to do is to consider this story in three acts. We'll look at Acts 1 and 2 today, and we'll look at Act 3 next week. So, Act 1, you've been warned. Act 1, you've been warned. Act 1 opens in chapter 6 and verse 9, describing Noah to us this way. If you're there, look with me at verse 9 of Genesis chapter 6. The Bible says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Three ways that Noah is described to us in this opening verse. He's a righteous man. He's blameless in his generation. He walks with God. The Bible is not telling us that Noah's perfect that he's the best person at being righteous out of anyone else, but it does tell us that there is a 
trajectory of his life that is different from the trajectory of the lives around him. You might remember in the previous chapter, we've already heard this phrase, walked with God. Remember there was a person that's twice identified in the previous chapter as having walked with God? It's Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Now we're seeing that, that, that uh, uh, Noah walks with God. And what does it mean to walk with God? Well, I've heard it said by somebody else that to walk with God is to be, be walking with Him in the same direction that He's going. So Noah is headed in God's direction while the people around him are not. And we're going to see that, that because there's going to be this contrast between the character of Noah and the character of the rest of the people who are inhabiting the earth. You can see that beginning in verse 11. The Bible says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, there's a repetition of words here that's intended to drive the contrast home to us between the character of Noah and the character of the people that are surrounding him. It's the author's way of highlighting something. If you've ever read a Christian book of some kind, often they do pull quotes from that book where there's one little sentence that kind of stands out so that you can kind of get an idea of what the main point the author is trying to make on this page is. Well, our author has done that for us by piling up terms. One of those terms you see appears three times is the the word corrupt. The inhabitants of the earth are corrupt and the world is corrupt. And then they use another phrase twice. It's the phrase, filled with violence. And I want you to see that this is a very deliberate choice of words here when Moses, I believe the author is, uses the term or the phrase, filled with violence. Because I want you to remember what humanity has a responsibility to do. The job that God gave humanity was to be fruitful multiply, and fill the earth. So God has placed His image bearers on the earth. What what does it mean to be an image bearer? It means that we are God's representatives in some sense on earth. We are like Him. We are His representatives. And we reflect Him on earth. We, we, uh, We reflect His glory. And so God's intention is for this planet that He has created to be filled with His glory by being filled with people who bear His image and are cultivating the earth. They're taking their responsibility seriously to make the whole earth Eden. So, we've been told that humanity has a responsibility to fill the earth, in essence, with God's glory, and the text now tells us that humanity is doing the exact opposite. Rather than being fruitful and multiply and filling the earth with image bearers, the earth is instead being filled with violence. And for that reason, God decides to make an end of all flesh. We talked about that last week when God 
when the violence and the evil and the corruption in earth, the Bible says it, it grieves God's heart. We talked a little bit about what that means and his decision to blot out every living thing from the face of the earth. And so God tells Noah to make an ark. An ark, the Hebrew word for ark, is simply a chest. Maybe we've got, I know we've got woodworkers among us, and you make a chest of some kind with, a, with an opening that you can store things in. And this is, in essence, what God tells Moses to make. He tells him to make an ark, to make a chest. There's, there's a difference between that and a boat. He's creating uh, a, a chest of sorts. And what's interesting here is that this word for ark is used 26 times in our story. But that same Hebrew word is only used in one other chapter in the rest of the Old Testament. And it's not translated as ark in that chapter, but what's interesting is it's translated as basket. And it's an exodus. Any stories in Exodus where there's water and a basket? <laughs> okay. Moses is the author of these books, and he's drawing an intentional link between the ark that saves Noah and his family from a watery death and the ark, the basket, that saves Moses from a watery death. This isn't an accident that these kind of links are, are, being, are, are being drawn together because we've got to remember that the first five books of the Old Testament, what we often refer to as the Pentateuch, are all written by the same person. All right. One other little interesting fact is that God tells him to build rooms on this ark, and the Hebrew word there for rooms is the word nests. So God basically says, build a chest and fill it with nests. For you, your family, the animals, an ark, a chest full of nests. Now, one little thing that I want to make sure that we have a, a correct perception of this in our minds is... A lot of us carry into this story, if we were raised in a Christian household or if you have young children that you have uh, read Bible stories to, all of us have had the Bible story books that we've read growing up, and they're illustrated Bible story books. And I'm not being a Grinch at all about illustrated Bible story books. Uh, we have them, we use them, we like them, but stuff isn't necessarily drawn to scale in Bible story books. <laughs> In fact, when you're looking at the pictures of Noah's Ark in the, Bibles, in the Bible story books, it looks more like a boat, and there's these happy giraffes that are so tall, they've got their heads above so they can kind of chill and watch everything that's happening. And because things aren't quite drawn to scale, we, lose, we kind of lose track of the, the size of this thing. The ark wasn't this small thing. The ark was probably around a football field and a half long. The ark is probably somewhere between four and five stories high. So kids, next time you're in a tall building, you're in a hotel or something like that, and you get in the elevator, make your parents stop at the fourth or fifth floor. Uh, parents are going to love that, especially if you're in a hurry. But you're not in too much of a hurry to do this. Stop at the fourth or fifth floor. Ask if you can get out and look. 
So you can get an idea of how tall this thing is. Okay, we are talking about a massive thing. God instructs Noah that he's going to build this massive chest that he's going to get in and be saved from the coming judgment. In fact, he makes a promise to him in verse 18 of chapter 6. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Okay, so God warns Noah that judgment is coming, but he makes this covenant with Noah that if Noah will obey God, he will be saved from the waters of the flood. Now, I just want to stop for a moment because, again, because, and I recognize not everyone here is familiar with biblical stories. And so, maybe this is a first for, for somebody here. And if that's a first for you, awesome. But a lot of people here have heard this story a thousand times, and it just, it's just kind of like, I know this thing. It's, it's autopilot. But I just, want to try, I just want you to try to step back for a moment and put yourself in the shoes of these people. I would ima- imagine the conversation, imagine Noah's first conversation with his wife. Honey, I've got this thing that I need to do, and I'm basically not going to do anything else forever, for a long time. I mean, imagine the conversation that that is, and there are biblical scholars who estimate that it could have taken Noah anywhere between 20 and 40 years to build this giant monstrosity. You don't, you don't take this up as a hobby. You don't, you don't come home from, from your job every day, eat a nice dinner, and then head to the backyard to do a little bit of woodworking. Okay, this is, this is going back to the back 40 of your lot that, you're own, that, you're own, that you own, and building a thing that's a football field and a half long. Imagine what the neighbors thought about that. I mean, there's this, there's this guy that lives off of college. People are already laughing because in the first service, people knew exactly who I was talking about. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. But there's this guy that lives off of college if you're headed towards 220, and he decided to turn his front yard into a lumber yard. And so there's huge piles of sawdust everywhere. There, it, there are, there's fallen trees. There's, there's lumber. It is a disaster. And apparently in Clay County, you can do literally whatever you want in your yard. And no one can say anything about it. <laughs> Now, I think it's, it's somehow gotten cleaned up a little bit within the past couple of months because it was truly a disaster, uh, I, I say in all love. But this is a dude just doing a little, a little woodworking project that's confined to his front yard off of college. And the neighbors are probably annoyed with that. So now you've got Noah engaging all of his time all of his money, 
all of his energy, basically directing all of his resources to building a gigantic chest in the middle of an open field where there's no body of water. It's not like on those roller things where it's like, hey, when we're done with the boat, we smash the bottle of champagne on it and roll it into the water. That's not what's happening here. He must have looked like an absolute lunatic. Everyone around him must have talked about Noah being like, he was a normal guy, you know, and then one day. Look, I don't even know what to say to him anymore. What others see as lunacy, though, God sees as faith. And the end of, the chap- of chapter 6 begins a refrain that we'll see three total times throughout this passage. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Looks like a lunatic, has to quit his job and everything else, but he does all that God commanded him. Act 2, take cover. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins with Noah getting a warning that he's got a week to get his affairs in order because the flood is coming. For the second time in verse 5, we see the Bible tells us that Noah does all that God commands him. He exercises faith. Noah takes cover, the rains start to happen, and the Bible says this in verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. Just notice the the callbacks to chapter 1 when we're talking about creation. It's after its kind. We're drawing some intentional linkages here between what's happening in the first chapter. I'll have more to say about, you, about that to you in just a few moments, but there's all these links that are meant to, using the same language, that's caused to make us say, hey, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Okay, this is significant because the author is, the author is doing something here. Okay, back to verse 15. They went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Notice it's the Lord that shuts them in. Remember, the ark isn't a boat in the normal sense. It's like a panic room that you can escape to when... Everything happens. There's no rudder. There's no sails. There's no paddles. 
There's no outboard motor. There's no mechanism to steer or direct this thing. It's just there. You go inside it, and apparently you can't even shut the door from the, in, from the inside. God has to do that. It's a device that's simply intended to be a floating shelter. And one of the interesting things about the other flood narratives from ancient accounts of, of a worldwide flood from the ancient Near East is that in every one of those instances, the people are shutting the door that are being protected, but this instance differs because God is the one who shuts it. It's making the point for us again, this group of people are helpless. Helpless to protect themselves from God's judgment unless He intervenes on their behalf. All right. The second act concludes this way, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 7. The Bible says, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I'm going to go back to our children's storybooks again, and I, I'm not picking on the children's storybooks. Okay, children's storybooks, good. <laughs> Write that down in your notes if you need to. Children's storybooks are good. <laughs> but I think because of the way we've heard this story, those of us who have grown up around Christianity or the Bible in some way, I believe the way that we've grown up with this story has maybe caused this story to lose its edge. Because how is it that you hear this story when you're little and you're growing up? The emphasis is on the floating zoo. Isn't it cool? All the animals. Isn't it cool that there was this floating zoo? Can you imagine if you lived at a zoo? What kid wouldn't want to live at a zoo? There's giraffes with their, their long necks sticking out of the top. And there's all kinds of things happening in this floating zoo. But if that's the way, if that's our paradigm for seeing this story, then we are missing the point. And the point of this story is horrible. It is not about a floating zoo. This story is meant to horrify us. This story is nothing less than a reversal of everything that's happened in Genesis 1 and 2. This is a story of decreation. That's why the author is using words from the first two chapters about the creation story He's using words and phrases, and he's bringing them up again to draw links between the, the two of them so that we can say, see that what was done is now being undone. And there's two particular, particular literary links that I want to point out to you. Remember, in the opening verses of chapter 1, that the Bible tells us that God creates, and the earth is what? It's formless and void. It's 
unformed and unfilled. That's what we said formless and void means. Unformed, unfilled. So there's a sense in which there's chaos, and then God reaches into the chaos, and He starts forming and filling. So waters are separated. Land masses are created that can be be, uh, habitable by human life, by plant life, by ant life. Ant life? What are, I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm trying to say like people, animals, and, and things that grow, okay? Ant, ant life. Sounds very tough. I don't even know. The earth is, is formless and void, and God in His act of creation is forming and filling. But what's happening here is we see that the fountains of the deep are being opened up. We're seeing that the the floodgates of the heavens are being opened up. And whereas at one time waters were being separated to create landmass and place and places that are that are habitable to human life, now we see an act of decreation where these things are closing over each other once again. That there's a link. There's a second link that I think the author intends for us to see. He tells us specifically that everything that has the breath of life dies. If you remember back to the opening chapters, one of the things that the Bible specifically says is that God breathes into humanity's nostrils the breath of life and He becomes a living soul. Now, everything that has the breath of life is extinguished. So we are going from an act of creation which is supposed to progress into the, to the uh, cultivation of the entire earth. We are going the totally wrong direction. We're going towards decreation. And so this is not a story about a floating zoo with bunnies and giraffes and monkeys, though all of those characters are present. It is a horrifying story of God's judgment. All of us have seen footage on the news of floods that hit particular areas. And one of the things that we see when a flood comes to a particular area, if it's a residential neighborhood, one of the things that sometimes happens is people get trapped, and as the floodwaters rise, they have to climb out an upstairs window onto the roof in some way, and you see these these daring rescues. You see a helicopter come and And somebody will rappel down from the helicopter and attach a harness to somebody to lift them to safety. Or or somebody will come by on a boat and help the people who have reached, the waters are reaching higher and higher up on the roof of their house. They're helped into the boat and helped to safety. But what do you do when the waters don't stop rising? What do you do? When every single living thing on earth is fighting for the high ground. What do you do when that space gets smaller and smaller and smaller and there's nowhere to go? There's no boat coming. There's no helicopter coming. There's no Salvation Army. There is nothing. The world is returning to chaos. And that's not 
meant to sit well with us. If you're sitting there thinking, as any reasonable person would, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the way God is doing this. I'm not sure if, if, if I'm comfortable with this. I've, I've got questions here. The judgment here is awful. If you're sitting here thinking that, you got the point. You may not like the point, but you get the point. But if you'll remember, the main idea that I said to you at the beginning of the message today is this. God is faithful to protect His people from judgment. And in the midst of all this chaos, verse 23 tells us that Noah and his family and everything else that's in the ark are safe, though, the, though there is nothing but devastation around them. All right. Those are the first two acts of a three-act story in these chapters. That's sobering. That should be sobering to us. Now, the New Testament uses the story of Noah in a couple of significant ways on two different occasions. I want to look at one of the ways the New Testament references the story this week, and I want to look at the other way that it references it next week. The first way that it that uses this story or references this story is found in two of the four Gospels. The Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And both Matthew and Luke record Jesus teaching and using this story to illustrate his point. Let's read what Jesus says and how he uses this story. It'll be on the screen behind me, or you can go to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36 says, but this is Jesus speaking, but concerning that day and hour, what day and hour, Jesus? Well, it's going to tell us in a minute. But Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus if you don't know, often refers to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, verse 38, he says, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that's the day and the hour that he's talking about. That's, that's it. Verse 40, then two men will be left in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You don't know what day the Lord's coming, but here's something you can know. Verse 43, but we know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. That's, he's making an absurd statement. If you know when the thief is coming, you're prepared. The whole thing about being as a thief is no one knows. Verse 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay. 
So Jesus uses the story of Noah as a reference point in talking about the second coming, that he is going to return, and when Jesus returns, he is going to return unannounced with both judgment and salvation. Both of those things are going to be present. But the big difference between, one of the big differences between the second coming and the first coming is that the first coming was announced. There was a lot of runway, when you think about it, leading up to the first coming. We've got angels appearing to all kinds of people. We've got an angel appearing to Joseph. We've got an angel appearing to Mary. We've got an, uh, an angel appearing to Mary's cousin Elizabeth. We've got angels appearing to the shepherds. We've got, uh, we've got the, the, the wise men, the magi, getting information and making the pilgrimage to see Jesus. We've got uh, uh, John the Baptist, a, whole, a person whose whole role is to kind of throw the red carpet down and say, the Messiah is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, he's on his way. What Jesus is warning his disciples about here is, is the second coming is not going to have the warnings, the anticipation that the first one has. He's just going to come. The return of Jesus in judgment is going to catch many people by surprise, even though it has been promised. So, there is a warning here to those who are not followers of Jesus. This is very important. What I'm saying is literally a life and death issue. I don't say that to manipulate you. Like, I guess I better listen to this part. Literally a life and death issue. Okay? Jesus is, is using this story to remind us that things are not going to go on as they always have. Noah's day, people were going about living their lives, Jesus said. They're growing up. They're finishing high school. Maybe they get a job out of high school. Maybe they're going to college. They're going to Applebee's on Friday nights for half-off appetizers. They're going to tailgate college football games or Jags games on the weekends. They're marrying their childhood sweetheart. They're having babies, and then their babies are growing up and having babies, and then they're becoming grandparents, and life just seems to be going on as it always has. And Jesus says, don't let that cycle fool you into thinking that it's always going to be the way it's always been. When I come, it is going to be a surprise to many. I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning, but I'm speaking to somebody. Maybe you're here this morning and you are on the fence about Jesus. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while now, and you're just trying to sit on the fence. Maybe you're a young person or a child who has grown up in 
a Christian home, and so because you're just kind of part of the thing, you're in the thing, and your parents have you at church, and you do the, you're doing youth group, and, and some of these spiritual decisions are being made for you, but personally, in your heart of hearts, you're on the fence. You have never taken responsibility for your own relationship with Jesus, and that can is just getting kicked down the road. When I'm older and I'm doing college stuff, maybe I'll think about it. Maybe I'll give some serious attention to this. Or, or, or maybe when I've got a few things settled career-wise, relationship-wise, I'll start becoming more serious about this. And we kick the can down the road, and we see this sober warning from Jesus where he says, you don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know if you have the next day or the next hour. You don't know if you'll have that marriage or that job or that tailgating party. You don't know any of that stuff. Don't let my coming be a surprise. If you're here this morning and that's you, I want you to understand something. I'm not a fire and brimstone-y kind of preacher probably know that by now. I'm also not a big, big advocate of fear-based change. You can scare somebody into making a decision or doing a thing, and it's, it's helpful in the short term. It's not that helpful in the long term. But hear this. That does not mean that the Bible never says anything intended to strike fear in your heart. It absolutely does. So here's what I call you to this morning. The Bible in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 15 says, Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Do not kick that can down the road a little bit further. The Bible verse does not say tomorrow or when I graduate from high school or when I finish college or when I get settled in my career or when I do this or when I do that or I've had a chance to taste the world that I want to. You don't know if you've got another minute. So today, today, right now, don't Harden your heart. If you feel that thing inside pulling you, if you feel that sense of conviction, don't do anything else right now except bow your head, repent of your sins, and turn in faith to Christ. Okay. Let me say a word then based on what Jesus has said here in these verses that we read together. Let me say a word to those of us who are followers of Jesus. We are a people whose future is intended to shape our present. Think about that. Your future is intended to shape your present. That's what happened with Noah, right? Noah's future shapes his present. 
God's promised to deliver Noah, and God is going to do that, but that doesn't mean Noah sits back on his front porch, front porch and just kicks back. Spends a long time building an ark. And no doubt, Noah looked like an absolute fool as everybody's saying, hey, Noah, it's Friday night, half-off appetizers at Applebee's? I'm busy. Noah, we're tailgating this weekend at the Jags game. You in? I got something going on. All the people around him are getting married and having babies and going to Applebee's and doing the stuff everybody does, but Noah isn't because his future is shaping his present. I thank God he put us in a world where we can meet people and have babies and see grandkids and tailgate and I guess go to Applebee's for half off. I don't even know where that came from or why I'm saying that, but it's a thing that you can do and people like it. I was listening to someone talk about this passage of Scripture, and they were talking about the fact that Noah is doing something here that is profoundly countercultural. Imagine if Noah had chosen the way he was going to live based on how many people around him are doing it. Noah's the one that looks like a complete fool. If you're going to measure, if you're going to measure what you're doing based on how many other people are doing it, you may just be going in the wrong direction with the crowd. Noah's future shapes his present, and the same thing is supposed to be true for us as followers of Jesus today. The future that we have in Christ, the certainty that he has, he has rescued us from judgment, that He has forgiven us of our sins, that He has raised us up to the heavenly places in Christ, that He is going to bless us with all blessings for all eternity in Christ. All of those things are going to happen to us. And if that's the case, then I ought to have a say in how we live right now, should it not? God maybe hasn't called you to build an ark, and if He has, we should probably talk. But our problem as Christians sometimes is we're not countercultural enough. We're countercultural with half the culture, but we are just like the other half. It doesn't change the way we speak, really. It doesn't change enough our values, the way we spend our money the way we spend our time, the things that we are living for, they are often so shaped by right now. And Jesus comes along and says, you are in the world, but you're not of it. And you're going to look different. You ought to be getting rejected by both sides of the culture war. Not one. We ought to be profoundly different as Christian people.
And so we need to get comfortable with walking with God, going the direction God's going. And if you're walking with God in the direction that God's going, that means you're walking against the crowd. And it gets old, and it gets tiring, and we start asking ourselves, could this many people be wrong? Noah's family was eight versus everybody. We had to live more like people who believe that this world is not their home. And so we obey Jesus. The fact that Jesus is coming in judgment ought to cause us to look at the people around us and say, just look up, please. Disaster's coming. We do this because we love them and because Jesus has rescued us from the wrath to come. And as he says, Jesus has called us not to nod off, not to check out, not to join a side of the culture war. Stay awake. That's what he says. Stay awake. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord, I pray two things that grow out of the sermon this morning. The first thing I want to pray is that you would help us to be a church of people whose values are shaped by the future. That we're living for where we're going, not where we are. There are a thousand different ways to do that. I pray that you'd help us to do that. Lord, I'm burdened for someone who may be here with us this morning who is on the fence about Jesus, and they have heard the gospel week in and week out and have just thought that there's probably more time. I pray that the fact that you've said no one knows the day or the hour would lodge in their spirits, that they would turn in faith and repentance to you and be gloriously saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.